0: Hello, and welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, episode 45, Crushing Our Enemies, in which Senusaret III launches his largest campaign into Nubia, and the Egyptians practice some fascinating rituals to curse and weaken their foes. This episode is sponsored by Scott from Denver. Thank you, Scott, for your support. As always, wherever you may be listening, please enjoy the show. The year is approximately 1864 BCE, being the 16th regnal year of Egypt's mighty ruler Ka Kaure Sinusret III. The country is peaceful, its neighbours are quiet, and the daily rhythm of farming, crafting, building and burying is continuing serenely, as it has for countless years. At least, that is how it was progressing for the Egyptians. For those on their southern border, the Nubians, life was once again about to get dramatic and horrifying. In his 16th year on the throne, Kakaure launched another campaign into Nubia, which he recorded in detail on a stone stele, which survives today and was erected at the town of Semna. Quote, Year 16, third month of the second season, His Majesty is making the southern boundary as far as Semna. I have made my boundary beyond that of my father's. I have increased that which was bequeathed to me. I am a king who speaks and then does. That which my heart conceives is that which comes to pass by my hand. I am one who is eager to possess, not allowing a matter to sleep in his heart, attacking him who attacks me. Since, if one is silent after attack, It strengthens the heart of the enemy. Valiance is eagerness. Cowardice is to slink back. He is truly craven, who is repelled upon his own border. It is answering the Nubian which drives him back. When one is eager against him, he turns his back. But when one slinks back, he begins to be eager. But they are not a people of might. They are poor and broken in heart. My majesty has seen them. It is not an untruth. I captured their women. I carried off their subjects. I went forth to their wells and smote their bulls. I reaped their grain and I set fire to it. I swear as my father lives for me, I speak in truth without a lie. Now as for every successor of mine who shall maintain this boundary, which my majesty has made, he is my son. He is born to my majesty. The likeness of a son who is the champion of his father, who maintains the boundary of him who begat him. As for him who should relax this boundary, and shall not fight for it, he is not born to me. End quote. Historians are somewhat divided over the question of Egypt's southern boundary during the 12th dynasty. More specifically, they're divided about who established it. Some would argue that Senusret I second king of the dynasty, created the Nubian Empire, and was responsible for the chain of fortresses that connected Elephantine to Semna. You will find this described in episode 37. That being said, some historians believe that the border was not created until the reign of Senusaret III, and that earlier campaigns in the region were grandiose raids rather than true conquest. For myself... I think the process began in the reign of Senusaret I, and was steadily expanded by his successors. They enlarged existing fortresses, built new ones, and sent out additional campaigns to crush rebellious locals, or move the boundary slightly further south. As a result, what might have started as a small chain of forts, a couple of raids, and a reasonable sized chunk of territory slowly morphed into a huge network of 13 bastions, each one filling a different but vital role in their location. At any rate, Kakaure's only certifiable contributions to the empire in Nubia were the stela that I just read, and the foundation of some new fortresses, most notably on the island of Uronati. Uronati is 5 kilometers north of Semna, and takes the shape of a large triangular fortress with only one gateway into the living quarters of the soldiers. It had immense 14-metre-high walls, and dominated a rocky outcropping that went from southwest to northeast in the middle of the river. What is most unusual about this fortress, though, is that the walls do not face southward. They face north-northwest the very opposite direction you'd expect. Why would Egyptians build a fortress facing northward towards their own country, when their primary concern was the territory and tribes to the south? There are two possible explanations. Firstly, the fortress might have been started or planned by Nubians before the Egyptians invaded. The kingdom of Kerma or Kush to the south was developing its power during this period, and it's possible that if they were hoping to fortify against the early 12th dynasty kings, the need for protection might have led these rulers at Kerma to start building new bastions. This is entirely possible, but it's not proven, and it will require some deep digging for archaeologists to uncover the foundations and establish whether Uronati was developed by the Egyptians or the Nubians. The second option, and this is speculative, is that the Uronati fortress was meant to guard against something slightly different from southern Nubians. Perhaps the territory between Semna and Uronati was safe, but north of Uronati the locals were still a danger? Or maybe the fortress at Semna and the fortress at Uronati were a pair, defending a vital corridor from any external threat. This is entirely possible, and a quick bit of satellite surveillance will explain why. The fortress at Uronati faces northwest, which at this point in the river means it is facing towards the Libyan desert and the backcountry. This country is, essentially, the eastern edge of the Sahara, and it has been the home of nomadic tribes since the earliest days of Nubian and Egyptian prehistory way back in our earliest episodes. This was the land that Harkuf of the 6th dynasty travelled on behalf of his king, Pepi II, and a land from which tribes were forever raiding the fertile lands of settled Nubia and Egypt. So the fortress of Uronati is not facing Egypt itself, but the wild desert lands to its west. The walls do not guard against local Nubians, but against raiders who might come and threaten the traders sailing up and down the river. I have scanned this area on Google Earth, and even a quick examination makes one thing abundantly clear. The fortress at Uronati was probably not always an island. If you look to the water on the island's western edge, you will see that the riverbed is closer to the surface, which gives the water a brown coloration. To the east... It is the deep green-blue of the Nile at its deepest. Now think about the fact that the Nile today is higher than it used to be, thanks to the lake created by the Aswan Dam. This means that in earlier centuries, the water was even shallower on the west, and in winter might have been low enough to cross by foot. During summer, the Nile flood would have isolated Uronati again, but for most of the year... This stretch of the river was vulnerable. Kaure's fortress solved that problem by creating a mighty bastion against western raiders. Its walls face west, but its only entrance faces towards the east, and thus the fortress could be provisioned by ships. If raiders attacked from the west, they faced an enormous wall, a river that was likely to rise and cut off their access, and the problem of ships coming from north and south bringing food and warriors at any point. It is so damned cool. It's like the Mont Saint-Michel in Normandy, mixed with Dragonstone from Game of Thrones, mixed with Egyptian ingenuity, and I love it. Kakaure's campaign in year 16 was not his last, but it was the last major step in the process of imperial expansion. The Middle Kingdom borders of Egypt did not go further south, although campaigns occasionally punched down into Kerman territory. Senusret III fixed the border at Semna, ensured that the territory north of that town was fully pacified, commissioned a few new fortresses, and thus claimed credit for the so-called Conquest of Lower Nubia. But this process had probably begun as far back as Senusret I, and been slowly ramping up in intensity, until Re really set it in stone. So, over the course of about 115 years, Egypt's rulers and soldiers had pushed past their traditional boundary at Elephantine to aggressively dominate the country of Wawat, which was their name for northern Nubia. It was their first true acquisition of foreign lands. But to explore the functions of these fortresses, we have to revisit Nubia itself. What was happening down in Nubia at this point in time? To refresh your memory, the primary centre of Nubian culture and political power was Kerma. The people living here are collectively known as the Kerma culture, sometimes called the Kingdom of Kush, and they emerged around 2500 BCE. By the time of Kakaurei, they are a prosperous and developed community, that within the next 150 years, will reach a population of almost 10,000 people. That is serious growth for this part of the world, at this period in history. So Kermans were doing something right, and it's not yet clear whether their growth was tied to the expansion of Egypt into this general region. As fortresses went up in the north... Kerma might have benefited from an influx of new wealth. For example, a site known today as Askut provides a compelling insight into the relative ease with which Nubians and Egyptians interacted. Askut is also an island in the middle of the Nile. It was easy to defend and well fortified, with thick mudbrick walls surrounding a series of barracks, officers' quarters, and storage rooms. Archaeologist Stuart Tyson Smith of the University of California, Santa Barbara, suggests that Ascut was used as a food depot. It would serve as a collection point for foodstuffs in the region that could then be retrieved by, or delivered to, soldiers from the other 12 fortresses. Ascut might also have served as something similar to a provincial prison. Stuart Tyson Smith has a theory based on small clay seals discovered in the fortress itself. The seals divide the fortress into three administrative departments, one of which was called the kenneret. A kenneret was a type of institution used to manage forced labour, which was the standard punishment for minor criminals and those who tried to shirk their obligations in construction projects. The presence of a kenneret at Askut, Smith says, suggests that this particular fortress played a big role in providing forced labour for the gold mines and military patrols required in Lower Nubia. Chances are that a great deal of the gold used in Middle Kingdom coffins was sourced from locations and projects like these. It's not the nicest historical fact about Egypt, but there it is. Convict labourer made for good returns. Other fortresses in the area might have filled complementary functions. Semna, for instance, acted as a trade bastion and a guard against Nubian riverboats. You see, when Kakaurei campaigned in Nubia during year 8 of his reign, he made specific instructions for the region of Semna, and how it would govern the local territory. As part of this earlier campaign, the king had decreed that no Nubian ship or boat would travel north of the Semna fortress. Nubians themselves were allowed to trade north, but to do so, they would have to switch to an Egyptian boat, or sell their goods at Semna for shipping downstream. It's a very interesting example of early Egyptian attempts to control trade, which probably had very lucrative benefits for the Egyptian soldiers. By building their own riverboats, the soldiers could make a living taking Nubian traders north of Semna, and probably taking a cut of the profits. Did the king also take a cut of this trade? Well, this isn't clear, and I would hesitate to assume that his government was able to do so. The king resided at Ichitawi, approximately 900 kilometers to the north, or 600 miles as the crow flies. His ability to directly influence matters down in Semna was probably limited. This isn't to say that local officials, like the commander of the fortress, didn't take a cut in the king's name, but I would be very surprised if much of this found its way north to the capital. After all, the king was interested in three things above all. Gold, captives for building projects, and the enhancement of his personal glory through conquest. By year 16, he had the first two in spades, but the third was not quite complete. Sure, there was glory to be had in a victory over Nubians, but plenty of Egyptian kings had gone south for that particular purpose. If Kakaure wanted to truly excel, he had to go somewhere else. And for this reason, he also launched a campaign into Palestine. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Live Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. There is no certainty about the date of Senusret's northern campaign, but it seems to have reached as far north as a town called Shechem, which is now a suburb in modern Jerusalem. What the king did up here is unclear, but if we had to guess he probably took captives and degraded local Bedouin tribes, which were a frequent menace to Egyptian caravans. There wasn't much gold to be had in Palestine, although the treasures of Amenemhat II, back in episode 39, show how skilled the locals were at working with silver and copper. Again, we are speculating here slightly, but with little obvious motivation beyond glory, it is quite likely that the pursuit of captives and treasure was another major reason for Senusret’s campaigns. Captives, you see, could be dispersed among the soldiers as slaves, or put to work on construction projects or in provincial towns. Egyptians were proud of their king and his achievements. They celebrated the military might of Egypt's soldiers, with the increased production and use of a particular type of object, known today as an execration text. An execration text is usually written on a breakable object, like pottery or small statues. The text contains a description of Egypt's traditional enemies, Nubians, Asiatics, Libyans, Bedouins, desert raiders, and a variety of other unidentified peoples. After writing the list of the enemies, and a description of their qualities, the Egyptian would smash the object, and then bury it. Symbolically, this amounted to killing a foe, and then burying them. This simple act asserted Egyptian supremacy, and degraded the enemy on a metaphysical level. Now, how this worked was quite simple. A text, or an image, was thought to contain the properties of the thing it represented. So a statue of a king contained the qualities of that king, part of his essence, if you will. A statue of a Nubian warrior contained the essence of that enemy. You get the general idea. Now you add to that a description of the person, and most importantly, their name, or however you know them, Nubian will do. By doing that, the artist gained a degree of control over their subject. Most of the time, this was pretty benign. You know, you make a statue of the king... It's not going to make someone try and control him. But making and breaking a statue of an enemy, that's powerful. Execration texts show up from as early as the pre-dynastic period, around 5000 BCE. But their use peaks during the late 12th dynasty. In fact, some of the largest concentrations of execration texts come from lower Nubia, at the various fortresses established and expanded during this period. So, if there was ever a better time to talk about them, it's now. As we know by now, the Egyptians saw the world beyond their borders as an incredibly dangerous and chaotic place. You can understand why, they lived on the edges of the Sahara, but their response to this world has always been one of their most fascinating psychological traits. They had two ways of dealing with the outside. They could accommodate them, as long as the person conformed with Egyptian ideas. Or they could persecute them, usually if the person did not conform. The execration texts are the latter. The first example I will discuss comes from Mergisa, one of the 13 fortresses built in Nubia. Here, execration texts were found on statues and pottery, broken up and buried in pits that survived undisturbed until their discovery by archaeologists. The texts are pretty formulaic, so here is a typical example, in which an Egyptian has listed his foes, both human and abstract, which he wishes to banish and destroy. Quote, The ruler of Cush, born to his father, who was born to his father, and all the vile ones who are with him, their descent and their dependents, all Negroes of Kush, the bowmen of the Southland, their champions, their couriers, their allies, their confederates, who will rebel, who will plot, who will fight, who consider fighting, and who consider rebelling in this whole country. Those in Libya and all the desert men and their rulers, their champions, who consider fighting, who consider rebelling in this whole country. All people, all nobles, all common people, all men, all castrated ones, all women, and all authorities who will rebel, who will plot, who will fight, or who consider fighting. Every bad word, every bad speech, every bad thought, every bad fighting, every bad disturbance, every bad plan, every bad thing, every bad dream, and every bad slumber. Quote. This particular Egyptian had quite a list of foes. Not only does he include the standard ones, Nubians, Asiatics, desert tribes, rebellious individuals, he even goes off into the metaphysical. These execrations of bad speech, bad thoughts, bad dreams, etc. are sort of the more aggressive flip side to good living and proper order, which today we called ma'at. While ma'at was enacted through beneficent action and thought, it could also be defended with violent destruction. Kings had been defending Ma'at for centuries through the construction of temples and the pursuit of campaigns. Now, non-royal Egyptians could get involved in this process by producing, or buying, execration texts. If they couldn't afford to build shrines, or weren't allowed access to temples' inner sanctums, they could at least destroy the emblems of chaos and disorder. But sometimes they took defending Ma'at to a higher, more uncomfortable level. Excavations at the Nubian fortress of Mergisa revealed many broken pots and statuettes, but also a human skull. This isn't an isolated discovery. Earlier and later examinations of execration texts were found associated with burials of individuals that had been executed. So it seems that sometimes the symbolic destruction of enemies could be complemented with quite literal destruction. Would this be counted as human sacrifice? Well, that is a tricky question to answer, and it depends entirely on how you interpret the psychology behind it. When we talk about human sacrifice, it's usually in the context of executions, where body parts are offered to a god. But Ma'at is both a goddess and a sociological concept. Which one were the Egyptians emphasising when they executed their captives? I'm inclined to say that these Egyptians were more concerned with proclaiming military supremacy and the consequences for those who opposed them, rather than actively offering to the goddess herself. I say this because to the best of current historical knowledge, none of these execration texts or executions were buried with images of the goddess, or dedications to her. So these should be viewed as executions, rather than human sacrifices. But perhaps we are splitting hairs just a little bit. Maybe these are in a grey area. If the execution of rebels or criminals tells us anything, it reminds us of how violent Egyptian civilization could be. For all the sophistication of its philosophical outlook, the complexity of its mythology, Egyptian culture was still built on that age-old bedrock of violent and aggressive domination of all who resisted. The Egyptians of the 12th dynasty wanted Nubian wealth, and rationalized this desire as part of their overarching worldview. Ma'at demanded order, and order demanded subjugation of those who opposed it. If the Nubians were seen as opponents to this, they were fair game. Is it kind? No. Can we criticise the Egyptians for it? Certainly, with caution. But should we? Well, that's up to you. Life on the Nile during Dynasty 12 was not defined solely by its violence or its expansion. As the country prospered, individuals took care to manage their homes and lands with common sense, ingenuity and affection.